welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 40. By Crom! Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Tonight is a Father's Day Eve, and I am recording an episode here. It's pretty late. Tonight's episode might be long, but we shall see. I am going to be talking about a print and play games, and then I'm going to talk about Barbarian Prince, which is available as a print and play game. Though it wasn't originally a print and play game. I just noticed that uh, actually the last episode I did, number 39, was basically the second anniversary show. The first show was published on May 27th and the the episode 39 was published on May 28th. So it means I'm averaging about 20 episodes a year, which is more than I thought, honestly. So anyway, let me jump into the news. First, I think I forgot to mention this one last time, but the game K2... Not Disaster on K2, which I talked about last time, is going to be available in the U.S. again, or maybe for the first time, and it might be available now. the The really neat thing is that actually it's going to be about forty percent cheaper than it used to be, which is a huge, huge discount. So maybe I'll finally get a chance to try it because I've heard it's a really good game. The second item is the game Naufragos by Alberto Corral is going to be released in English as Castaways. I think it's going to be coming out in the next couple months or so. This is a, I believe it's a cooperative game, and it supports solitaire play. As a matter of fact, the designer had a a few segments on solitaire gaming in a Spanish podcast, El Tablero. And the third item of news, if you're into Rory Story Cubes, they've, uh, they're going to be releasing some new ones now. They're, they're mini sets that have three cubes each, and each has a, a different theme. Unfortunately, not going to be available in the U.S. probably at least until 2014, according to GameRight, the U.S. publisher. That's it. That's all my news, so I'm going to go ahead and jump into the next segment. Print and play games. Okay, so a few weeks ago I got an email from a listener who had just found the podcast and was interested in getting to board gaming but wanted to try out some print and play games. I was already planning to talk about Barbarian Prince, which, as I said, is available as a print and play game, so I figured this would be a good subject for the next show. So there's a few different things we could look at about print and play games. There's the amount of effort or, or the scope of work, what you can do in a print-and-play game, costs, the tools you'll need, the different components and parts or supplies, the opportunity for outsourcing some of that work, and maybe a little bit about techniques so I have enough time. So first is the scope of work. When you're going to make a print-and-play game, I mean, you can, uh, you can make it an easy experience for yourself, or you can get really detailed and make it very complex and... I think the amount of effort you put into it is going to correlate directly to the quality of the final product. You know, sometimes you don't want to spend a lot of effort, sometimes you do. I think it just depends on the game and how much you enjoy putting a game together and that sort of thing. Easy jobs are going to hopefully involve minimal printing, which means you're not going to be picking a a large game with lots of pages or large lots of files and counters and lots of things have to be put together. You could probably scavenge your, you can probably scavenge bits from other games. For example, if you use those wooden cubes, you could just borrow the cubes from another game. You could make some of the game digital. For example, when I played Barbarian Prince the other day, I tried the, I tried uh, the print and play chapter book, one of the variants, and um, I used that. I just used it on the laptop, and whenever I had to look up a paragraph, I just searched in the laptop instead of flipping through pages. As I said, you're going to want to pick a game with few components. The the more components are, the more effort you're gonna have to spend to make the game. The cost also tends to be lower when you're when you're going this easy route because you're really just doing as little as possible. 
when you start getting into a more detailed effort and trying to make the game much nicer, you're going to have higher quality bits. Definitely, it's going to be much nicer. You might end up making custom pieces for the game. I just printed out, out the land of Venon and ended up deciding to make my own telescoping box for it, like the size of an Onirian box. So I actually had to cut the box and build it. And then, because I didn't necessarily like the the style of the available box art images, I took that and I played with it in uh, the GIMP and PowerPoint and made my own version of that box art. If you're going fancy, you could use wood components, a lot more wood. For example, if the game has a board, you might, mount it, might want to mount it on wood. A couple years ago, I made my own version of those de Mayo. And for example, I found at the thrift store a folding chessboard. And I bought that. I carefully peeled off the metallic chessboard and then had a wooden box, which I used that box for the, for the game. I printed out the map and stuck it on the box. So, you know, something like that ended up coming out pretty neat, but yeah, it was a lot of effort and, you know, it had, it did have neat components in the end. A lot of these games may have a lot of components, so that's again going to take more time and then it's going to be more cost. The game's going to be more expensive just because of all the effort of, of all the things you're going to need to get together. If it has a lot of pages, you're going to have a lot more printing, so you're going to spend a lot more money on ink and that sort of thing. And the fancier you get, the more money you're going to have to probably spend on tools. Now, which is better? Do you want to go easier? Do you want to go detail? I think it really depends on yourself. I find I enjoy the game more the nicer it looks, and I'm more likely to want to replay it. Because of that, I, I tend to try and put more effort into a game. On the other hand, if I, I feel I'm rushed, I, I just want to try the game out, I'm not even sure I like it, I might just do the bare minimum, print the map on paper, and not worry about the fact that it's not going to be very steady, I'm going to print out the fewest counters I need, and just borrow pieces from other stuff to try out the game. I don't know. Overall, I do find those games less fun for me. I, I think putting a lot of effort into it just makes it more satisfying. Sort of like hunting your own dinner. I mentioned outsourcing before. That helps if you want to make it easy. And I'll get more into that later, but you basically could have other people do the work for you. So as I said, the costs are going to vary. The less effort you put into the game, probably the cheaper it'll be. And the costs could go up a lot, but they tend to be a lot of one-time costs involved with buying tools and that sort of thing. Once you have your basic tools, the supplies often aren't that expensive at all, especially if you want to reuse components. Okay, so let me go over some of the equipment you might want to use. These are, I think these are all stuff I've had experience with personally that I've tried out. First of all is a printer. That's almost a requirement. You need a computer printer so you could print all these files that you're going to download. A tablet or a laptop is nice, especially if you're going to do a partial digital game, like, for example, the way I did with the uh, Barbarian Prince. I don't enjoy using a laptop as much as a tablet for something like that. It's more bulky and it's going to take up more table space. The tablet I can move off to the side if I'm not using it at the moment. A desktop computer is probably going to be harder to use because you can have this huge monitor. Well, they're not as big as they used to be, but still. It's also just going to be harder to get it in the right place, or most likely will be. Unless you got a huge house with a huge desk. Anyway, um, you're gonna want a ruler and an X-Acto knife or other cutting tools. For example, for example, there's a circular cutters or guillotine cutters, or, and there's other kind of cutting tools. I have found that if I want something to be precise, I prefer using the ruler with the X-Acto knife. The circular cutters tend not to be as precise for me. They're it's much faster and it works pretty well, but you know, again, if I care about the precision, I'll go with the X-Acto knife. Um, I think other tools might be more precise, too. In terms of cutting, I think more or less 
the more you spend, the better off the tool's gonna be. And, you know, that's true with most things, isn't it? Though, you know, again, the Exacto knife and ruler option is pretty cheap. It's slow, hard work, but it's cheap and it'll do a good job. Another tool I like to use, which is not very expensive at all, is a corner rounder. Corner rounder. It's basically a little tool that you use to punch off the corner of a card. For example, you know, the card has a straight corner and you slide that corner into the counter. You slide that corner into the corner rounder and punch it down and when you pull out the card, you know, you have that nice little round corner. It makes shuffling and sorting cards much easier for some reason when the cards are rounded. And I think they look nicer. And I bought one, I think it was only like four or five dollars. It didn't cost very much. Cutting board is definitely nice, especially if you're going to be cutting cards and stuff, and especially if you're using an X-Acto knife or a rotary cutter or anything like that. And I should say a rotary cutter is basically sort of like a pizza slicer. So anyway, a cutting board, for example, self-heating cutting board is nice. Self-healings aren't permanent. I noticed after a while they do start to get uh, cuts in it that just never heal. But I've had one for years and I use it a lot. I keep using it. It's still fine. It doesn't really impact my cutting. I've also got a glass cutting board. I think I found it at the thrift store. It's interesting. It works pretty well, but I wonder about using glasses. That really just dulling my blades really fast. I don't know. Though again, for me, I find that one's really good when I want precision in my cutting. Another tool I like using a lot is a brayer, which is basically a roller, sort of like a rolling pin with a, a handle. It's a small one. And it's great for when you're printing on sticker sheets to to press it down, make sure it's smooth so you have no bubbles. And that was a tool that was like 4 or $5, and I find I use that a lot. Another tool I like is a long-reach stapler, which is basically a stapler on a with a really long handle so that you could actually staple booklets together even like um like for example you could print out something on legal size paper fold it in half if you have a few sheets and the stapler is long enough to be able to staple the middle of the book actually whenever i whenever i download some rule book and print it out i all end up using the stapler for that to keep all the pages together it's a little bit expensive i think it costs about 25 dollars for the one i have doesn't get as much use as other stuff but it is nice so it's probably not the wisest investment and finally one more thing is a light box i've Got one, I've actually haven't used it for print and play stuff. Actually, I bought it, I've never used it because I put it downstairs in my basement and I forget it's there. But a light box can be handy, especially if you're printing out double-sided cards or counters you need to line the stuff up before you stick it together. And, you know, the light box is basically like a glass surface with light shining underneath it. So you could put your work on top of there and unless your paper is really thick, the, line will, the light will shine through it and you could line up the two sides of, uh, or two sheets of paper together really well. So those are all the supplies I can think of that I use. The most frequent are definitely the printer, the ruler and exacto knife, the brayer, the self-heating cutting board, cutting board for sure, and then probably the corner rounder. And then the last two are the, the... So now I've told you about all those tools and equipment you're going to need. So what are you going to use them on? It's your supplies. First of all, there's printer paper. I think that's probably the most common thing to use. There's a few different types. You could use regular paper, which comes in different weights. I think depending on what you're doing, you're going to find different weights are going to work better for you. If I want something to look nice, I tend to go with a heavier, like, 24-pound paper. If if it's just something quick and dirty, I'll use a thinner and cheaper 20-pound paper. I also occasionally use cardstock, which is basically thicker papers, like a 100-pound paper. And um, it's sort of like thin cardboard think say um 
if you buy like a frozen a TV dinner or something like that, the, the kind of cardboard that that comes in. And I also like using sticker sheets, and that's probably my favorite, but it's also the most expensive. And these are basically 8.5 by 11 sheets of paper that are adhesive on the back. So when you print on it, you could then just peel it off and stick it on whatever you need to stick it on, whether it's counters or a box or dice or whatever. There's a few different kinds. I have a bunch right now which aren't very good. They are removable stickers, so they tend not to work very well if the paper folds. It doesn't stay folded so well, and it starts coming loose on the back side. So make sure if you're buying sticker sheets, you avoid removable stickers. Then you could get thicker boards uh, if you're making boards or counters or anything like that that needs to be on or tiles that need to be on a thicker type board than say even cardstock. You could get poster boards or mat boards. Poster boards is probably the thinnest of the three. Mat boards pretty good and chipboard. I think chipboard tends to be thinner than mat board, but it works pretty well. For example, I said I mentioned I made that box. I, I used a chipboard. And it seems to be about the same thickness as a box that you would buy for a commercial game. I also think it's a little bit harder to find the map board for some reason. I don't know. You know, in the map boards, you'd find it in a framing store. Because that, that's basically what they use for framing. So in the, when you have a picture, you have a map board around it. And then that's inside the frame. And again, these all work pretty well for counters or if you're making boards. I haven't made too many boards. I find them really hard to make them come out nice. So I, so I avoid games with those for some reason. Well, for that reason. Other supplies you're going to want are game bits. You could take them from old games, games you bought that you find are just so horrible they're not worth keeping. Keep the bits. Dice, pawns, wooden cubes, especially wooden cubes. Money's decent. Uh, Scrabble tiles are good. You know, if you, you go to the thrift store, you can find games pretty cheap and just buy them for the bits. There is a, a store, a Goodwill near my house, which is a, a clearance center or an outlet store. I call it the Goodwill Outlet. And when you go to those, you buy things by the pound, and these they're just thrown into these big bins. So a lot of times you'll find games, and somebody else has gotten there before you, and it's all dumped all over the, these big blue bins. But, you know, these games that are basically falling apart, getting the money from that or the pawns from that, that's a good way to, to get a collection of bits for your print-and-play games. I also like using poker chips, and not just for print-and-play, but just in general to keep track of points or money or whatever. I bought some little miniature poker chips that are, I don't know the size, but they're smaller than the standard poker chips. And they're they are smaller, which makes them easier to store, and they still have a nice hefty weight, so they, they feel nice to use. I'll try to remember to include the link for those. I found them on some discount poker website, I think, and it was like $10 plus shipping for a box of 250 poker chips. Um... So game bits, you know, paper money, poker chips, scrabble tiles, just anything that you can find from a game that you think will be reusable. And the last category of supplies you're going to want is sealants and glues. There's like the spray-on sealants. I use clear contact paper sometimes to seal stuff, like, a, like if I have a board, I could just put that on there. Contact paper tends not to look very nice necessarily. It's okay, it's not fantastic, but it, it works well and it's easy to use and relatively cheap. I know there's the lamination paper people use and buy and I think it's a little more expensive but I've never I've never tried it so I can't really comment on it. Then there's spray glues and craft glues and different kinds of glues. I don't know a lot about glues. I've from what I've seen the spray glues are tend not to be very permanent. You gotta spray them and then quickly stick the stuff down or it's gonna be or the glue's gonna end up being more temporary because it's a bit fiddly. 
And then there's also craft glues, which are sort of like uh, Elmer's glue or the kind, the white school glue. And it, there seems to be different varieties of those. Again, I said I don't, I don't know a lot about glues, but there seems to be different ones. So you want to experiment and see what works. Some of the stuff I've glued I've, a few years ago, then I'm coming back to look at it now, they're starting to come undone, unfortunately. So that's it. That's all the supplies I came up with. I mentioned you could outsource a lot of the work. I occasionally have done that sort of thing. There's a few different ways you could go as far as outsourcing the entire game and have somebody else print it and build it for you, or you could just do parts of it. Outsourcing is pretty much always going to save you time. Sometimes it saves you money. Sometimes it ends up being more expensive. If you want a complete game done for you, there's two options I know of. One is the Game Crafter, and another is Print and Play Productions. The Game Crafter is a website where if you have a game, you could upload it to them. And they basically do a print-on-demand service where anybody wants to buy that game from you. They will build it and ship it to a person. I guess you get some of the money for that. Or you could just use it to upload the game you want to build for yourself if you're not even interested in trying to sell it to anybody else. And they tend to do... I think they do a full range. I've never used them. They'll do boards and cards and they have pawns and paper money and all that stuff, whatever you need. Print and Play Productions is the same. Print and Play Productions is actually a user on BGG, Howitzer120. Andrew Tolson, and he's the person that did the Kickstarter last year. He's the person that did the Kickstarter last year for Vesuvius Incident, Last Frontier, and uh, Intruder. He does a lot of print-and-play games, and you know, from very small to very big. It, I think they're all generally free, freely available games that are on BGG or elsewhere. And he'll print them out and build it, and you know, you could get deluxe versions and very basic versions from him, and the price varies. The games can be expensive if you go for a deluxe version of a big game. But again, you know, he'll do everything and you get a nice game in the end and spend no effort. And he also, actually I know he and I believe Gamecrafter also just sell components if you want to do your own print and play but just need supplies like wooden cubes or something. Okay, and then there's a source for components. If you need just something like, say, cards, you could use ArtsCow or Printer Studio and these are print-on-demand services where you would upload the image and purchase a deck of cards and they'll send you the cards with whatever images you put on there. You could go to Office Depot or any office supply store that does printing. You could have them print out sheets for you. If it's an ink-heavy paper, I might just want to let them do it. I don't remember the price, maybe 50 cents a sheet for color for 8.5 by 11 paper. So that tends to be pretty quick and pretty easy. I think it, those kind of places can also do large posters relatively cheap. So if you got a large board or something you want to make, you could go to them and have them printed on a on a large poster board for like fifteen dollars or so. Or I think I'm not sure, but that'll, that'll be a good way to get a, a board relatively cheap and relatively fast because a lot of those places are just in every city. I think Walmart also does that sort of thing. There's other places that sell components. For example, there's Meeple Source, which sells a lot of board game bits, meeples with uh different patterns on them or plain meeples and little wooden cubes and fish and cows and all these little wooden bits. Uh, I think cost, custom play, clay pieces for some games. They sell, they also have mini poker chips, which are really nice tiny ones. Not very heavy, but not like the super cheap, super light ones. So a lot of these services are a great way to get your stuff with less effort. Artscow and I guess Printer Studio, I know if you're doing cards, that might be a bit of effort because you might have to upload the card artwork and position in each card and kind of get that lined up the way you want it to look and then get it printed. I know with ArtsCow, if somebody else has already done that and they've shared the link to it, you could just go and basically add it to your shopping cart with a little bit more effort, but you basically add it to your shopping cart and 
all the layout is done, and you store to the cards. The the quality of the cards is okay. It's not fantastic, but it's not bad either. They're better than anything I've ever made at home, that's for sure. And if you wait for a sale, you could often get cards from Cow for like $6 a deck. So what can I say now about putting a game together? Gosh, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of it is trial and error and just learning from experience. The hardest things is probably sticking things together, I find. When you have to stick counters and, and line up the front of the back of a card or, or when I was trying to make my box and get it to line up. That sort of thing tends to be harder, I think, and you just got to get get it done a few times and get better at it. I find with that sort of thing that it pays to take your time and be patient and measure twice and, and be careful. When using sticker sheets, I'll, I'll like to line the things up very carefully on the sticker sheet with the adhesive, well, with the uh, sticker backing still on there. And then when it's lined up, carefully peel off one part of the sticker backing and stick my box, whatever it is I'm trying to stick to the sticker, in that corner. And then little by little peel off the other parts of the sticker backing. And then use my brayer to smooth it out. And that tends to work pretty well. For cutting, like I mentioned, if I want something to be more precise, I will use an X-Acto knife. Other things are faster, but that one works nice when I want something precise. Building stuff with wood, again, it's, you know, measure and be careful and take your time. A lot of these things just can take days, and you just want to you know, do steps a little bit at a time and just take your time and you'll get there eventually. When I'm doing counters, if I've printed counters, I tend to cut them apart using a like a box cutter sort of box cutter tool. The X-Acto knives tend to be too light and just harder to use. Anything that has a lot of cards, I would probably just go with Artscow. Making cards manually is a lot of effort, especially the lining up and then later on cutting them apart. It just takes forever. And then after that, like I said, get your corner rounder and round off those corners and make them look much nicer. I think that's it. I don't have... A, well, it's late. I don't have a lot of ideas for for techniques right now. I'm sorry. So I'm going to go ahead and jump on to the, to the next segment, which is today's game. Okay, so I'm not going to start talking about Barbarian Prince yet. It's the next night after recording the show, and I've actually got more stuff I wanted to mention. A couple things I forgot and a couple news items I've got since then. Since I was just talking about print and play first, one thing I forgot that uh, I had tried before is using linoleum tiles that you could buy at the hardware store to as backings, to use them as boards for or even counters. Instead of using a sticker sheet, you print out counters or the board pieces or whatever it is onto regular paper, buy a linoleum board at the hardware store. You could get them for about as cheap as 75 cents each or so at a place like Home Depot for the cheapest ones. They're self-adhesive, so you just peel off the adhesive on it and stick your paper on it. You could cut it out with a box cutter or that type of tool. They work really well. However, I did go back and look at some that I did a few years ago, and a lot of the color has, or a lot of the blackness from the back of the linoleum tile has bled onto the paper. It, It looked really bad. I don't know it's because if I used cheap tile or cheap paper or what. I didn't look at all the boards I made that way, but the one I did come across did not survive well. Okay, then besides that, I've got some news. I just got an email from GMT Games today. Um, once you start back in the games, they send you emails all the time. They know what's going on and all that. A few other P500 games that are solitaire-friendly are actually going to be shipping sooner than I thought they were. Let me see... Charging on July 5th is Cuba Libre, and on July 20th, Navajo Wars. So both of those will be shipping July or August time frame, and then sometime in the mid to late third quarter will be The Hunters for Content Press. I also got an email today from Victory Point Games, and so they now have Circus Train by Tom Decker available. So what they have is a special convention edition, which includes a bonus acrylic first player circus tent marker, 
And inside the box has the convention edition printed on the cover. And there's a few dozen copies left. Well, no, a dozen copies left at the warehouse. And they're available first come, first serve, I guess. If you're interested in column, the phone number is 714-945-4066, Monday to Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific, and ask for Noel. Um, they mentioned a lot more stuff. They're going to start doing more war games. I assume this includes more solitaire war games. And they mentioned they got something like 200 games that they want to start prioritizing and figuring out what order they're coming out. 200 games is a huge number. Some of those are reprints, re-releases with updated art and that sort of thing. Some of them are new. I don't know. Most of them must be new. Okay, so there you go. Let's get back to the regularly scheduled game. So, as I said, today's game is Barbarian Prince. It was designed by Arnold Hendrick and published by Dwarf Star Games. It was released in, um, I think in the 80s. This is a small game. It comes in a box. It's about the size of a, a VHS tape. I think it's the same exact size, actually. Barbarian Prince is a solitaire-only game. It is a game of heroic combat in a forgotten age of barbarism and sorcery. It is a chapter-driven game. So as you're moving around the map, you're rolling dice and having events and looking up in in an event book at the chapter to find out what happens. This game is long out of print, but as I said, it is available as a print-and-play game now. The designer has very graciously made the files available, and there have been some redesigns done on BGG. Most notably by uh, Todd Sanders, who's made a, a few of his own games, such as the Aether Captain series and the Land of Venom that I mentioned earlier the, that I printed out. The his, his rework looks really, really nice. It's definitely worth checking out. And very functional, too, which is awesome. So in this game, you get two books. They're, they're very thin paper, sort of like newspaper or, or like the kind of paper a Bible's printed on. You get a cardboard map, which... I don't know how it looked originally, but it, it is pretty bent right now, and it won't really lay flat. I guess it will if I put plastic on it, but I haven't done that. It uh, brings a little metal, metal miniature. Unfortunately, my copy doesn't have the little guy. It's a little tiny pewter barbarian. It probably lead, honestly, from if it's from the 80s. I don't know if I bought, brought dice or not. And it brings a couple charts that you use to reference during the game. You had to supply your own pennies for counters and that sort of thing. So I like this game a lot. I had a lot of fun playing it. In this game, you're basically you're a barbarian prince. You're you are a barbarian prince. Your name is Cal Aroth, and um, I guess your homelands were overtaken by some body or other. And so now you need to go and raise enough money to raise an army and come back and defeat these vile villains or whatever. So what you do is you're playing. You're just walking around this map that's got a a hex grid imposed on it and you're exploring and going to different towns and dungeons and places and hopefully get enough money to to make it back the way it works is each turn you basically you roll dice to try and move when you try and move to space and depending on what you roll you either succeed or fail and it depends on the type of terrain you're in and the type of terrain you're going into then after you do that you roll again to see if you have an event if you roll high enough you will have an event and then when that happens, you roll on a chart that gives you a number, which gives you, references another chart, and you roll again, and then it tells you what chapter to go look at. And you read the chapter, and you read, oh, you've been attacked by wolves, or you found a little lost kid, or whatever. And then you act upon that, and your turn is over. At night, you have to hunt for food. If you don't have any, or you eat food. If you don't have any, you have to hunt for it. 
and then you go on to the next turn and do the same sort of thing. It's chapter driven, so it's pretty limited in what you can do, but then again, it has a surprising number of options. In the wild, your options are basically to, to move or to spend the night there and just rest. When you're in a city, you have the options of looking around for information, trying to petition the king, looking for followers. So that's the thing. In this game, you could have followers. You could have people that work for you, like fighters or porters. You could fall in love with a princess or something. Um, you could have horses. And a lot of different stuff happens. The events, are, there's a huge number of events. I think the event book is about two to 300 events. I'm not really sure. And I've played this game probably five times, and I definitely, I think four times, I definitely have not seen all the events. I've seen a very small number of them. This game is not very uh, strategic. It's very much your plane and just reacting to what's going on. So, you know, you, you roll and you find out you have an event and you read the event, and it might be that your horses are tired and can't move on. Or one time I was playing and I came across an elven fortress in the woods and had to roll to see what happened. They didn't like me. They threw me in jail. Took everything I had, and then I had I was stuck in jail and took a roll of uh, snake eyes. So then I just kept rolling each turn until I got it. Fortunately, in the second turn, I rolled two ones. So I was in jail a very short time. But, you know, stuff like that happens just out of the blue. And you go on and you play it, and as you, when you finish the game, hopefully you did well, and hopefully it lasted a while, but once you finish, you've, you've built a story of everything that's happened. You know, I recorded my plays on BGG, and in a couple of them, I, I wrote all my experience, or I think in one of them. Let me go back and read this to you, because I think it's pretty neat. So here, here's what happened in one of my games. Um, I started in the town of Weshar, tried heading south, and spent my last gold on a ferry into the swamps. Um, eventually found my way out of the swamps and uh, was arrested at a hidden elven fortress in the forest. I escaped after two days in a dungeon and traveled to the Temple of Tsar, but when I got there, I realized I lacked money for any offerings, which meant that there's nothing for me to do there. So I decided to head south to the ruins of Peljar. On the way, I stumbled upon an ancient tomb and found 48 gold coins inside. So then I headed back north to the temple and spent 10 gold for offerings. I spent the day talking to a priest who told me that the Count of Castle Drogat is an undead vampire, and they could be influenced with a plant only sold in the Temple of Duffid. So I headed to the Southlands, Trying to find that Temple of Duffin, I was surprised by a great cat, but I was able to defeat it without many wounds to myself. And then after that, I encountered a band of five Amazons. I spent a little time speaking to them, but they took a quick disliking to me and killed me. And so my game ended there. And the game ended very suddenly. You know, things were going pretty well. All of a sudden, I'm dead and the game's over. And that happens a lot in this sort of game. Just, you know, your luck is going to turn on a dime. I find that that has been fun and it doesn't at all bother me. Again, because just the experience of going through these adventures tends to be fun in itself. Hopefully I didn't give anything away in that uh, reading that to you. But, you know, it's all luck-based. Chances are that I'll never ha find that uh, that thing about the vampire again in another game. And I, I think that's where the strength of this game is. Each time you play, it's going to be a very different experience. I've played four games. I said another one went pretty well. I had two porters. I had a child with me and... Things were going interesting. I had enough gold and I was heading back to the Northlands so I could win the game. And <laughs> so I reached a river and we're trying to cross the river. And it's, it's slow going for whatever reason. I kept uh, getting lost. But uh, we're trying to cross the river. I fall off the raft and uh, everybody on the raft, along with all my gold, disappear off into the distance. 
so at that point, you know, I still I still could have kept playing, but I gave up. There's no way I was gonna find all that gold again. <laughs> so that was that was entertaining. Um, other games I've played have ended in about five turns because just bad luck. I right away encounter a, a group of guards that don't like me and attack me. And one guy against five doesn't do so well. So I don't know if this game is for everybody. It has a lot of reading. It's a chapter game, so you're constantly looking up the chapter and flipping through the book trying to find it. There's a lot of die rolling. For example, to move your old paradise, reference a chart to see if you could move. If you whether you do or don't, then you roll paradise again to see if you have an event. If not, your turn. Well, if not, then you got to eat, and you might have to roll dice to go hunting. If you do have an event, you got to roll a die to to find out what chart to look at. Roll another die to look in the chart, and then go to the event. And the event might have more die rolling again. Playing the game at first is a little bit slow. I love the way the rule book is laid out because every rule has a paragraph number. And as you're reading, it always says, refer to this paragraph, refer to the paragraph for whatever rule you need. Just like the event. The events are the same. The, I think rules start with an R, events start with an E. And they each have their own paragraph book, but they're basically the same layout. There are, unfortunately, errors. I've come across references to the wrong paragraph number a few times. And I'm sure there's many more of those. A couple of times it was pretty easy to figure it out. A, a couple others, it just gave me the wrong paragraph number and I had to keep looking through it to find what seemed to be the right one. I think the Todd Sanders reformatted rulebook has fixed a lot of these issues when they have, when he has found them. So you're probably better off going with that version of it. So I should talk about the reprint. The, the reprint, he has redone the entire game. The map has been redone. He has created a character sheet that makes it easier to track your game on. Um, he's redone the rulebook layout entirely. And like I said, I think I, he's actually fixed the text. All the charts have been redone. The design is really, really nice and very functional. The rulebook, for example, has the paragraph numbers easy to find and all just well organized and well laid out and very clear and easy to read. The map, very nice. I, I don't like using the map as much because... The design's a little bit more abstract, and the map that came with the game looks like a map, and you can see the stream going down, and the forest sort of looks like forest. In the redesign, the forest looks like green hexes versus you know yellow hexes for a desert sort of thing. So I enjoy the the original map better. The, you know, it's a little harder to read sometimes. I gotta admit that. Regarding using the rule book printed out versus reading online, I prefer flipping through the pages of the book. I, I don't like using the computer as much. Especially because you're flipping back and forth a lot in this, you're gonna have to, you know, go from event 17 on page three to the next time you look at the book, you're going to page uh, 15. So there's a lot of page flipping, and because it's online, it's a little slower than just flipping across from the front of the book to the back of the book, for example. Fortunately, when you're online, you could use the find and search, which works also because, for example, you know, I may search for event E050. And when I find it, there's a bunch of references throughout the book to that event. So I'll have to cycle through those before I get to the actual one, maybe. You know, unfortunately, printing out, it can be a lot of pages. I think I think it's something like 30 or 40, maybe 50 pages for the whole thing. I'm not sure exactly. I think you could print it in a booklet format so it's smaller and you'll only use a lot fewer sheets of papers. The Todd Sanders version would use a lot of colors. So this is something I would definitely take to an office depot to have them print it out for me. The game takes, I think, you know, anywhere a short, unsuccessful game will take about 10 minutes at, at the low end, probably to, I think, a full game will be about 90 minutes probably, maybe a little longer. 
I don't know. Every time I've played, time's gone by really quick. I'm always surprised how late it is after I, I stop playing, except for those really short games. The game has a fixed number of turns in that there's, I think, 10 weeks, and each and you're playing each day in the week. So there's two little tracks. There's a day track for one week, and then there's a week track. So after the end, you know, you do your stuff for the day, and then you advance a day track. Once you reach the end, you move on to the next week. So I don't think I've played the game to the end yet. Like that last game I played where where I fell into the river and lost all my friends, I could have kept playing. I was probably like at week six or so. But, you know, I've been playing for a while and it was pretty late, so I decided to just call it a night. I don't know how much the original version goes for. I get well, I think I paid about $15 for mine on a BGG auction. I think it's well worth it. I would go look for it on eBay if it's going for that. I would pick it up. The reprint is also worth it. You know, this is a fun game if you're not looking for deep strategy, and it'd be worth getting in any version, I think. Okay, so that's it. That's Barbarian Prince. I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, I think you can tell I've enjoyed it from all the gushing I'm doing, and hopefully you'll hear from me in a couple weeks again. Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you'd like to contact me, you can find me as Fractaloon on BoardGameGeek, or you can email me at OnePlayerAlbert at gmail.com. You can also post comments on the Podcast Geek list on BoardGameGeek, or come visit the One Player Guild on BoardGameGeek for comments and discussion and whatnot. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected under a Creative Commons license and can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published under Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. Thanks for listening.